Tonight we have the special blessing of handling one of the most beautiful chapters in the book of Isaiah with regard to the coming Messiah. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll cover the whole chapter tonight. Because the question is always asked, maybe some of you caught some of Aaron Rodgers' comments about why he didn't believe in God, why he wanted no part uh, of a relationship with God. And he, in that statement, basically made the cause based on his understanding that he couldn't understand why a God would send anyone to eternal punishment to hell. But if you really think about it from God's perspective, there's no reason to save any of us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you look at sin itself, God didn't create sin. God gave man a choice. And God, in that sense, gave us free will. And in giving us free will, allowed us to validate our love. Or to tell him that we don't love him by the way we live our lives. God has always planned to save mankind. There has never been a time from Adam to now that God was not good, that God was not kind, that God was not loving, but also that God was not just and holy and righteous. And the ingredient that we need to stay focused on when we think about our relationship with God is how good he is, how loving he is, and how willing that he is that none should perish. And in fact, Peter reminds us, he is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so tonight we have this incredible prophetic view And it comes at a time when the nation Israel is divided. Uh, They're about to become just the southern kingdom of Judah. The book of Kings records this time, and we'll look at a couple of things there. But as the prophets wrote, they wrote what God wanted them to say. They, They spoke into humanity They spoke to the children of Israel in a way that we would always have hope, but that hope would always be in God. Our hope doesn't belong in our country no more than it belonged in the kings of Judah. Our hope doesn't rest on the plans of man. Our hope rests in the plans, the character, the nature, the love of God. And so it is that hope that God gives the children of Israel in a very, very, very dark time in the history of the nation. So would you pray with me? And we'll dig into our passage tonight. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you have always been good and you have always loved us and you have always been unwilling that any should perish. And you made a way, and that way was by you sending, Father God, your own Son, you, Jesus, coming to this earth and living life amongst us. You became Emmanuel, God with his people. And Lord, we thank you for that plan. It's the only way we could have been redeemed. And so, Lord, we bless you for your word. Speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Isaiah chapter 7. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, that the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but he could not prevail against it. 
And so this begins with a little bit of political intrigue, and we'll dig into that in a moment. But as you look at this passage, we are going to see a prophetic foregleam, what we would call a look into the future. But it's encapsulated in a view of the presence and is so, so present and is so often the case when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke, there, was, there were two, fulfillment, two fulfillments. There would be an immediate one, that immediate one the people could see. And there would be a future fulfillment. And that was why the immediate fulfillment was spoken of. It's like, I want you to look at this, but there was always a clue given within the context of the prophecy to keep them thinking, thinking there must be more to this than what we see in our present day and time. A near and a far fulfillment, a present and a predictive one, something that would happen in the future. But as the prophets wrote, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were not simply writing novels. Uh, for those of you that are Joel Rosenberg fans, if you remember his, his first book that was a bestseller was called The Ezekiel Option. It was written before the fall of the Twin Towers. And in it, he predicted that very event. And a lot of people thought, oh my goodness, he's, he's a prophet. The, God spoke to him. But if that were true, then everything else that he wrote in that book that was in the same vein must also be true, or he is a false prophet. Where do we get that from? It comes from Deuteronomy 18. If you turn there, verse 18, it begins this way. And I will raise up for them a prophet like you, speaking of Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. And so the role of prophet is defined very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so there was a purpose for the office, the role of the prophet in the life of the children of Israel. It is not somebody who is simply a pastor. In that sense, if you're talking about the office of prophet, not the gift of prophecy, do you understand the difference? I can prophesy in your life by simply speaking the word of God into your life. If I know what the Lord says, and I can see you in a situation, and let's say you're contemplating marrying someone that is not a believer, I can prophetically speak to your life, thus says the Lord, you shall not be unequally yoked a believer to an unbeliever. That is a prophetic speaking into your life of the things that the Lord has spoken. And it will be 100% true. But it is not something that was uniquely given to me. I am using the gift of prophetic speaking, not occupying the office of the prophet. The prophets do not exist anymore. So when someone calls themselves a prophet, that is a misnomer. They may have the gift of prophetic speaking, and most every pastor does who knows the word, but they are not occupying the prophet. This is a prophet speaking in the office of a prophet. These are words that were unique. They were spoken to Isaiah, and Isaiah spoke them directly into the lives of the children of Israel, exactly as Deuteronomy 18, 18 says. But notice how it continues, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, like God wants you to have a new Mercedes-Benz, or he's promised to fill your bank account with millions of dollars if you just plant a seed gift. Just saying. Or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. God was really, really harsh in the Old Testament on false prophets. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how do you know a false prophet? How do you know when someone is not speaking for the Lord? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, 
That is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That's kind of a duh moment, isn't it? Because he's already told us, if I speak to somebody, my words, they will speak them to you, and they will be 100% of the time absolutely true. That thing which the Lord has not spoken, that prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So God took very seriously the speaking of the prophetic word. And it has a very, very unique condition. You can't ever be wrong. If you say, thus says the Lord, and that thing does not come to pass, then by biblical definition, you are a false prophet. And that's why I have a huge problem when people run around the world declaring themselves to be a prophet of God. Because I guarantee you, everything they say about God has not come true. So by definition, they have proven themselves to be a false prophet. And you should not listen to them. Why am I telling you this? Because God wants us to trust his word. And so the standard of God's word is 100% accuracy. So if anything the Bible ever says about the coming Messiah, about Jesus the Christ, about his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his birthplace, his means of coming into this world, if those things do not happen exactly as the prophets that were identified in your Bible said, then you should not trust the Bible. Here's the good news. Thus far, not one single thing that the prophets have spoken have failed to come to pass. There are some things yet still to happen. And so God speaks into the life of the prophet. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says this, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man. But, the holy, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You have in Isaiah a real prophet really speaking forth God's plans into our world. And this particular passage is one that probably most of you have either sent or received in a Christmas card. And we shall call his name Emmanuel. Amen? That comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Why is that important? Because we're going to find out that Isaiah not only signifies the name of the one who would come, but also gives us a very unique piece of information that's verified in the Gospels, and that's the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. What's the setting for this event? Notice that here in verse 1, as we've, re- as we've read this, it was a time of political intrigue. It was a time of chaos. Uh, if you were to be there during that time, the nation in totality called Israel was comprised of, of, in essence, two groups. In the north, you had Ephraim, ten tribes. In the south, you have two, Judah and Benjamin, gathered together, basically known as Judah. In the north, you have all of the paganism and idolatry. In the south, you still have a clinging to the absolute truth of the word. And in essence, you have a carnal ten tribes and a godly two tribes. And if you look at our world, one could say we're kind of in the same place. Most people on this planet do not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a time of political intrigue when people are trusting in horses and chariots, when they are trusting in government allegiances and alliances, where we are engaged political speak every moment of every day. I I will never forget, and some of you are old enough to remember this, you had to actually wait for the news. Amen? You remember we used to wait for the Huntley-Brinkley report? Everybody remember that one? Hello, I'm Chet, and I'm David. You know, and they, and they would sit there and you'd get one hour of news and it was news. It, it was condensed in, into the truth. Walter Cronkite, 
You know, those types of reporters. Today, a news person is someone with a cell phone. A news person is anyone that can print anything in five nanoseconds to the Internet. During this day and time, there was no news cycle. The people themselves carried the news from village to village to village. It was everyone's life experience, and it was spoken from person to person to person. And when stuff happened, people knew about it, and they knew exactly what happened. They didn't get a cleaned-up version. They didn't get a politicized version. They got the truth. And the truth was that the kings of Israel, primarily the kings that resided in the north in Ephraim, kind of vacillated back and forth They would have a good king followed by a bad king, followed by another good king, followed by a bad king. And they went through these radical generations of just watching these kings come and go. And notice it says it came to pass in the days of Ahaz. Ahaz was a wretched king. He was an evil king. He brought back the worship of Molech and Baal. The center of the cult of the worship of Baal was what? The prophet Elijah confronted on Mount Carmel, which, by the way, is in the north. It's very near to the city of Dan. The city of Dan was originally the headquarters of the Canaanites who invented the worship of Baal. And so in order that they wouldn't have problems... In order that they could make their life a little more tolerable, instead of standing for the principles of God, they said, well, what's it really going to hurt if we worship Molech? So let's stoke the fire up on this bronze beast, hotter than ever, and let's take our children and roast them alive. I mean, after all, it's just one less mouth to feed. And the good thing is, Baal and the worship of Ashtaroth were, in essence, sexual immorality on steroids. And so you could worship Molech and kill the children you didn't want, and you could worship Baal and Ashtaroth and just make some more. Why am I telling you this? Because that is the cycle that our country is in right now. We have so sexualized our culture, and we are so prone to just destroy innocent life, that we will worship Baal over here and Molech over here. This did not go good for Israel. It will not go good for America. And so there is a future and a present. This was the real thing that was going on especially in the northern kingdom of Ephraim, part of Israel. I remind you that God's character changes not. His moral standards are, they have been the same since the dawn of time. And so the children of Israel were absolutely in cahoots with the world. They had compromised in every imaginable way, and they were doing exactly the same things that God told them not to do when he said, Therefore, be ye holy, for I am holy. Come out from among them. And so you have evil King Ahaz. He's the son of Jotham, who was a good king. His name means Yahweh has shown himself perfect. Jotham himself would be the son and successor of Uzziah. Rezin, the king of Syria, which was the northern part, we would actually call more more of it in the the neighborhood of modern-day Lebanon, but certainly southern Syria around the Golan and into Lebanon today. North of that was Assyria all the way over to modern Turkey, to the border of modern-day Iran. So the Assyrian Empire sat over the north of the entire Levant. 
what we would call the, the Holy Land, the Middle East. And here's this incredibly powerful nation that has the largest standing army in the world. And imagine you're sitting there in, in the 7th century, 8th century B.C., going, well, I sure don't want them coming after me. And instead of standing for the Lord, you simply begin to compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise. You you make political allegiances. You make political alliances. This man, Pekka, means open or wide-eyed. Ahaz's name actually is indicative uh, of what we would say he grabbed it. You know, like he snatched it. He, he got it. He didn't earn it. He just took it. And so these, these kings and these rulers were, were in a consummate battle between good and evil, between flesh and the spirit. And, and so as, as Pekah, who was started as an officer in Israel's army, became king through a bloody coup, he actually seizes power. He, he makes this political alliance with Tiglath-Pileser, who's the Assyrian emperor, who is one of the most powerful men that ever existed in ancient times. You, you can travel to almost any major museum in the world and you will find wall panels that were found in northern Iraq or in Syria, marking his reign. He was a brilliant military tactician, one of his most popular ways to convince people to cave in was to take the men and stick a pole in their backside and plant it on the edge of the road after it's been sharpened and allow it to slowly pierce through their body until it came out the top of their head. It was evil upon evil upon evil. But rather than withstand that evil, they said, let's cave into the evil. Rather than stand against the evil, they said, we'd rather be part of the evil than risk our own selves. And so when you look at the situation, it is a situation of compromise that brings the body of Christ into a place to where God is going to speak something to King Ahaz that was monumental. It's like, I want you to know who's in charge here, so I'm going to give you an opportunity. And now let's pick up the next nine verses. I'll read verse one again. And now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So the northern kingdom has Syria joined with it. There's a political alliance. It is evil. And so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved in the wind. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. You. And Shir Yashub, your son. And so here goes Isaiah with his first son. We'll find his second one at the middle of this chapter. Interesting. Uh, Ahaz, I'd like you to meet my son. My name, Isaiah, means Yahweh saves. My son's name means a remnant will return. How you doing? God saves and a remnant returns. Steps out to go inspect the aqueduct, which would be greatly improved by the great king Hezekiah who will follow. When we travel to Israel, we actually go through Hezekiah's tunnel, through the actual water course, which still to this day carries water from the springs of Siloam into the pool of Siloam. But he goes out to meet this evil king. And just the meeting itself, as he introduces his son, 
Because we understand you, you've made a political alliance with Syria. God saves and a remnant will return. He's just simply speaking to them from who they are. And at the end of the aqueduct, it goes on in verse 3. From the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, which is outside of the walls of Jerusalem. That is why when finally Judas hung himself, this is where he hung himself. It was outside of the city walls. You see, the problem with Jerusalem is it had no permanent water supply. There was a creek in the Kedron Valley. There was a creek in the Hinnom Valley, and they have the confluence. Uh, they meet just south of the city of Jerusalem. But under siege, they had no water. And so anyone who controlled the water controlled the city. And so they're going to inspect it. We understand you've made an alliance with our enemy. We're here to tell you God saves and a remnant will return because you're going to go into captivity. This is going to cost the nation Israel greatly. And in our story as we're studying the book of Daniel, we know that the children of Israel did in fact go into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Assyria will be wiped out. Babylon will come next. Babylon will take them captive. And in a time of their captivity in Babylon, as you ladies are studying in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah brings into view the great king Artaxerxes, who makes his proclamation in chapter 2 and gives them permission, which links back to Daniel chapter 9, which we'll study on Sunday night, giving the exact date that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem and be cut off. So God was speaking to them. He's saying, look, I mean what I say. I say what I mean. And I want you to get this. A remnant will return, but it's not going to be you. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. He says, when you go out and speak to Ahaz, you do the talking, let him do the listening. Do not fear the, for the, or be faint-hearted for these two stubs, these smoking firebrands, these smoldering sticks is another way to look at it. For the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because of Syria, Ephraim and the son of Remaliah had plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabeel. I love his name. Tabeel means good for nothing. We'll set a good for nothing king over him. Kind of sounds like our political process at times. We'll set a good for nothing king. That's the way, when you start trusting in horses and chariots and politics, this is where you, when you compromise what you know to be true about the word of God, you always end up trusting someone who is good for nothing. This is what happens. God says, trust in him alone. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen? And when you have to compromise what you believe in Christ Jesus for the ways of the world, you have made a very bad decision. Because God alone saves. It is the remnant that always returns. And if you do it in a political fashion as opposed to a Christian fashion, if you want to look at it from our perspective in the age of grace, then you will end up in a place that's good for nothing. God speaks to us today through this word. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not pass. It won't stand. It won't come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken down. So that it will not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. 
God speaks to Isaiah the prophet. He says, take your son, give him this message. It ain't worth it. It's not going to work out. And in that moment, in that day and time, he prophesied. He says, mark my words. If you do this, if you continue in this allegiance and this alliance, it will come to your destruction. It will cause the northern ten tribes to be obliterated and taken captive. And strangely enough, guess what happened? The ten northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria. They ceased to exist. Only a remnant of them would return. These were perilous days. The kings made a secret treaty with Assyria. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 16, by the way. And so here here these kings are in essence thinking they're making the right decision, but they're ignoring God as they're making the decision. They're, they're, They're putting the children of Israel in grave danger by not hearing the word of the Lord. And so God says, look, I want to speak into your life. It is my promises, it is God's promises. That's the only path to peace. Ahaz is fearful. And there's no doubt he's had reasons why he's made these allegiances. I'm sure he thought it politically expedient. Just like so much of the church today has kowtowed to the world. They think it's politically expedient. Well, you know, God said that. It was a long time ago, and we've come a long way, so do we really need to take a stand on those things when in our day and time, you know, we kind of feel differently about it? Like gay marriage, homosexuality in general. It is not a popular thing to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. God has intended for human sexuality to be inside of a heterosexual marriage. But for political expediency, we have the church going, well, God didn't mean that. That was then, this is now, we can forget about it. Remember what the qualifications are for a prophet. Never wrong, never changes. And so, in a very similar way, here Isaiah is speaking into the culture at that time. And the promise of Isaiah 26, when we get there, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, because I trust in God. That's why Paul could write there in Philippians 4, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Every bit of your capacity as a human being to understand anything is surpassed by the peace of God, which guards your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Isaiah, speaking to Ahaz, says, look, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going that direction. We refuse to cave in. We will not give in to this foolishness that you're undertaking. Within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the northern half of the land and ten tribes would be gone forever. Forever. The temple records would be destroyed by Titus in AD 70. And so no one can actually trace back accurately what tribe they belong to, save Judah, the southern tribe, the Kohanim, the priestly tribe, Benjamin. Isaiah spoke in the year 734 B.C. Assyria is, goes against Syria and defeats them. In 732 BC, this word was prophetically fulfilled in exactly 65 years.
And so to speak further into Ahaz's life, the Lord speaks to him again. He says, I'm giving you a prophetic word that's going to take 65 years to fulfill. Now I'm going to give you another piece of information. And so as this word spread, because people would say, well, you know, I heard about this conversation that Ahaz had with Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet is in Jerusalem prophesying. There was something else he said. Notice verse 10. Moreover, additionally, or in addition to, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Now, I love this. Because this as, is as in your face as you can possibly get. Look, I want you to get this, Ahaz. So I want you to ask anything. Notice what he says. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ask anything you want. I want you to ask God for a sign. If you don't believe this is true, Ahaz... We're going to give you one more opportunity. Ask God for a sign. Make it as high as you want, as wide as you want, as big as you want. Make it something really tough. Now imagine all the things that you, you could have thought about in that moment. Well, tell me when the first person is going to walk on the moon. Now that would be pretty tough. But nowhere near as tough as describing the king of kings and the lord of lords and so notice what he says but ahaz said i will not ask nor will i test the lord he, he gets a nice pious streak he says no nah, I'm, I'm not going to do that i don't need to do that and then he that would be isaiah said here now O house of david and so he, he switches over. He's already considering that Ephraim is gone. And all that's left is the house of David, Judah. Because he is of the tribe of Judah. Amen? As is Jesus. Amen? He says now, okay, here now to the house of David. Who's he speaking of? House of David. Very important piece of this puzzle. So is it a small thing for you to weary men but will you also weary my God? It's like, look, you are a bag of hot air. You've got the people completely freaked out. They're all wandering around because you have trusted in your political alliances and allegiances. You have not heeded the Lord. I've already told you this is not going good. Everything you did is coming down in 65 years. It's bad enough. But are you also going to weary God? And therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, he's not going to live long enough to see this sign because who's he speaking to now? The house of David. He is no longer speaking to just Ahaz. The house of David. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. A son, not a daughter, not a child, a son. And who is it? A virgin. And we'll dig into that in just a few minutes. Shall conceive. Now, in case you didn't know, a virgin conceiving is a miracle. And you shall call his name Bob. Larry. Bob the tomato, Larry the cucumber. No, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God with us. Who's he speaking? David. David's house. Judah. Very specific. What's he saying? Here's your sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name is going to be God with us. That's your sign 
that God is salvation and a remnant will return. Curds and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. Before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both of her kings. He says, I want you to know something. I'm going to show you that this is coming to pass because these guys that you have trusted in, their land will be desolate and they will not be kings. But this word will stand. And so Ahaz, probably sitting there going, oh my goodness, I really didn't want to hear that. Because we know, looking down through the next almost 750 years of human history that what Isaiah was saying was there was going to be one who would be not just born into this world but one who also will come down from heaven we'll find that in chapter 9 by the way so the prophetic word being added one thing to another thing so if you take this prophetic foregleam along with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that there would be one who would be born of a woman who would crush the head of a serpent. You see, each time you add these things and you add a few millennia to the timing and you push it out further into history, it gets less and less and less likely that it could ever be possible. And so as we get to Jesus, as Matthew's gospel unfolds, as Luke's gospel unfolds, which we're studying right now, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Apart from human reproduction, he could not inherit original sin. He could not be one of us, because here's why. His whole purpose is the answer to Aaron Rodgers' question. The Redeemer lives. The gospel is the gospel of salvation unto him who believes. Salvation comes by grace, the unmerited favor of God, and it is a free gift to any who will ask. But that Redeemer had to be the perfect sacrifice. He could not be a stained sacrifice. He had to represent the perfect red heifer. He had to represent the spotless lamb. He had to represent the actual Passover. He had to be all these things that we see throughout the Old Testament that that shed a light on what we find in the new. That's why Jesus was killed Passover week. Behold, John says, the lamb of God who actually takes away the sin of the world. Why would he say that during that time? Because as they celebrated Passover, there was the Lamb of God that was sacrificed to take away the sin, the scapegoat that took it never more to be seen. That's what redemption does. That's how it happens. Your sin has to be removed. It can't remain. It's not just put on a shelf. It's not that you're just simply acquitted. It's not there anymore. It's forgiven and cleansed. It's east to west. It's buried in the depths of the sea, never again to be remembered. But Jesus had to be God in order for that to happen. He could not just be a glorified man. He couldn't be totally one of us because if he had been born with a sin nature, then he would not be the perfect sacrifice So Isaiah tells us, Isaiah, here's your sign. One will be born of a virgin, and he will be called God with us. He goes on then to warn Israel, both in the present and the future. Verse 17 And the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and upon your people and your father's house. The days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So when you guys decided to split up and you decided that you would go to the north and begin to worship the false gods, when you abandoned Jerusalem and the temple, 
when you built your own temple in the north, when you worshiped in your temple in the north on the Sabbath and you went and worshiped at the temples of Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech, not since the day you did that are you going to know, know the type of destruction. Now, the reason we know this is true is because ultimately when Jesus comes, the Jewish people are going to be fairly few in number and by AD 70, they are going to be dispersed to the entire world. And if you read the history of Jerusalem, the history of Jerusalem for the next 2,000 years is not Jewish history. It's Bedouin history. It's Syrian history. It is Hashemite history. It is Nabataean history. It is the history of the British. It is the history of the Crusades. It is the history of Islam. It is the history of war after war after war after war after war. So much so that by the time the Balfour Declaration comes along, people look at Palestine and they say, let's give the Jews that because it's worth nothing. Where it is wet, it is a swamp. And where it is dry, it is a desert. We'll give them that. You see, the prophet Isaiah actually told King Ahaz that would be the case. The northern tribes will be wiped out. Only Judah will remain, and only a remnant of them will remain. Monumentally powerful passage of Scripture when it comes to the truth about the history of the Jewish people. And now I want you to notice the shift. And it shall come to pass, and here's that phrase, you can circle it and or underline it, highlight it in your Bible, in that day. It refers to that period of time that will be the very end of days, the end of the age of grace. It is pointing very far into the future, a time that is still future to us tonight. Though in a minor way they could see through what would happen to them in the present, it's speaking of something even greater because it would come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. In other words, so small and so tiny will be the children of Israel that they will seem like a fly in Egypt and a bee in Assyria. And if you know anything uh, about the return, about the Eliah back to Israel. Uh, the vast majority of those that came back were, were flown from places like Russia or from Ethiopia where they had been hidden for years. So when they come back in 1948, uh, this tremendous movement that moves on through the 50s and into the early 60s when they're coming back, there were so few Jews in the world that it was as, as if the Lord said, well, we need to bring every, just, you know, okay, you're over there, come on back. And they will come. All of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorns and all the pastures. And in the same day, the Lord will shave the, with a hired razor with those from beyond the river the king of Assyria, the head, the hair of the legs, and also remove the beard. In other words, there would come a point in time when Israel would come back into the land and those around them would effectively have their power cut. Now think of that one for a second. Who is the most powerful nation in the Middle East? It is Israel. Who is the smallest nation in the Middle East? It is Israel. Who has the best economy in the Middle East? Israel. Who has the mightiest military in the Middle East? Israel. What do you find in every single Islamic nation that surrounds Israel? Poverty. Massive poverty. You, you have a, such a disparity of, disparity of wealth, it's mind-boggling. You have no human rights in almost every single one of those countries. It says, I'm, I'm going to shave them with a razor. I'm going to make sure that you understand who we're talking about. I will gather them as a single fly and a single bee, and I will bring them back to a desolate land. When the Jewish people got to Israel, to Zion, when Theodore Wetzel, or excuse me, Theodore Herzl uh, announces that finally we have this, this Zionist state, it was a desert. 
There was nothing surrounding Jerusalem. You look at pictures of Jerusalem from the 1940s. It's like, who would want to live here? It is not the same thing today. Israel is now on the verge of exporting natural gas. Israel grows almost all of the citrus for Europe. Israel grows bananas, guavas. Israel has some of the most amazing farmland. They developed hydroponics. Came from Israel. It was the prophet Isaiah said, this is what will happen. I will gather them back. I'll bring them into the land. But the areas around them, I'm going to shave them. And it shall be in that day, verse 21, that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And so it shall be from the abundance of milk that they give that he will eat curds and for curds and honey. And everyone who will eat will be left in the land. And saying there's going to be scarcity around them. And it shall happen in that day again, looking future. Speaking of time that we call the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week that we'll study on Sunday night. That wherever there could be a thousand wives worth a thousand shekels of silver, there will be briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns and to any hill which could be dug with a hoe and you will not go there for fear of the briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen, a place for sheep to roam. And so God's speaking prophetically to the children of Israel, reminding them that here's the sign. I'm going to send one who's going to be named Emmanuel. And I'm telling you that there's going to be a time of great humiliation. I'm telling you there will be a time of great trouble. I'm telling you that there will be an invasion of the land. I will, I'm telling you, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll know exactly what Isaiah was talking about. Because it's the very picture that we find during Daniel's 70th week, a time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble. The rich farmland will become wasteland. Right now it's rich farmland. Israel has rich farmland. It has to someday, someday be turned back into wasteland. We know how that's going to happen because we have the totality of Scripture now. It's going to be a time of great humiliation. Right now, the Israelis are a very proud people, as well they should be. Every time you buy an Apple phone, chances are it was not developed in Silicon Valley. It, it was developed in the Hebrew equivalent in Netanya, south of Tel Aviv. Google's headquarters. Guess what? Netanya, south of Tel Aviv. They have additional facilities here. But there's going to come a time when Israel's going to pay a price for rejecting Messiah. Because he came. Emmanuel did come. Ahaz's heart was, was affecting the people and they would shake like the wind. And so in that moment in time, he says, look, uh, a virgin will conceive. And, and people debate over this all the time. And I just want to give you the backstory on it. There is a single Hebrew word, it's Alma. And, and many people have made the case that that can be also just simply a young woman of marriageable age. Here's the problem with that. It never means that in this context. Because the promise is what? It's to the house of David. The promise is not that some woman would have a baby. That would not exactly be a sign, would it? That some young woman eventually would give birth to a baby. That's kind of like saying, uh, tomorrow's Friday. That would be not a sign. And so the very context of it indicates it has to be greater than that. Both the usage and the context point it has to be the actual original usage, which, by the way, the Septuagint translators of the original Hebrew into Greek got it correct. They used the word virgin. It was not until the 1840s. In 1842, a Hebrew scholar William, uh, he was actually a German named uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Gesenus, who did not believe in miracles, said this cannot 
possibly be Alma, it must be Bathula, meaning a woman of marriageable age. And the reason he changed the word was not because of context. It was not because of the original manuscript evidence. It didn't have anything to do with the setting. It was not because the usage in the text indicated that should be the word. It was changed and the the Revised Standard Version still uses it. It's because he didn't believe in miracles. There were no miracles in the Bible as far as he was concerned. And so that history followed through in many of the modern translations. The problem is there's no manuscript evidence that supports it. There is no contextual evidence that supports it. And the setting of the actual passage definitely doesn't support it because God through Isaiah is given Ahaz a sign. I'm going to tell you something that you will not be able to know except that it's from me. And that would be a virgin gives birth to a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That would be a miracle sign, wouldn't it? And so when people come to you and they say, oh, you know, it's, no, it's not. And it was not translated that well, that way until 1842. And this is the problem with modern scholarship that does away with the literal translation of the scriptures. If the Septuagint, who were the closest to having original manuscripts to translate, translated it correctly as someone who was absolutely without knowledge of any man. In other words, there had been no sexual relationship. That's how they translated it. And that is how it should be translated to this day. And that's what makes it a sign. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene and he is called Emmanuel, it's like, oh, that's what you meant. God with us. That's the great feat. That's the miracle. That's why it's prophetic. That's why it's God speaking to man something that had not ever happened and hasn't happened since. That's why these other things we know are still future. It's like, look, there, there were all kinds of things that happened, but Israel came back into the land, even though it took 2,000 years. Israel's prosperous in the land, but there's going to be a time when it's going to dry up again. It's going to be after the Antichrist rises. We've been studying the, the, the rise of this coming prince in the book of Daniel. And he'll set up his kingdom. You see, that future fulfillment was what was in view. The sovereign God was saying, I love you. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to understand that I'm God. I'm going to give you a piece of information that nobody could know except me. I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen almost 750 years from now. And here's the awesome part of this. We have three full, complete copies of the book of Isaiah that date to 212 B.C. So we have copies of this word prophetically spoken to mankind 200 and almost 40 years before Jesus set foot on the earth. So when everybody's running around, I think that was Emmanuel. They were acknowledging the fact that they understood the prophetic implications. And by the way, that is exactly why the high priest was worried. Where is he going to be born? Bethlehem. Oh, man, I hate it. Malachi said he'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be of the tribe of David. Oh, no. And just on the march of the prophetic word of God was being carried out right before their eyes. And so they all sat there and they're going, man, we got to kill off every last child that's going to be born right now. We need to get this guy. Because if they call him Jesus, Yehoshua, God is salvation, by the way, pretty much the same name as Isaiah. We got problems. That would make him Emmanuel, God with his people. And of course, that's exactly what happened, and we'll wrap up. The miracle Jesus is Emmanuel. 
Emmanuel. All, all of Christianity is based on this one foundational truth. If God did not come to die in our place, then we're still in our sins. Amen? It's foundational. You can't remove this. You can't just make, as Christian science teaches, just this Christ-like ideal in somebody. He was kind of like had a bunch of good things in him. No, he has to be God. He has to be God incarnate in human flesh. That was what Isaiah promised. He wasn't just a good man who was glorified by God. He was God who died in our place. Amen? Big difference between those two things. You ever wondered why the recordation of Gabriel's interaction with Mary that we've already studied in Luke chapter 1 went down the way it did? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. What did Isaiah say? A son. Not a daughter. A son. And you shall name him Jesus. God who is salvation. And he will be great. And will be called the son of the most high God. Why? Because as we're going to find out in chapter 9. He was the son who was given. And the child who was born. He was both God's son given and he was also Emmanuel. And we'll give him the throne of his father, David, who's left in Isaiah's time. Judah. Where did David come from? Judah. Where is the throne? Judah. Where was that throne located? Jerusalem. Where's Isaiah from? Jerusalem. Who's he writing to? Remember what the prophecy was. O children of of David. God's making it so insanely clear that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus is the answer, Jesus is Messiah, he's Yehoshua. And he will reign over the house of who? Jacob. Who's that? That's everyone. What was the other son's name? A remnant will return. That's everybody. That's all Israel. That's why Paul, when he writes Romans chapter 11, says one day all Israel will be saved because there is still a remnant. Even though they can't trace their ancestry, God knows where every single tribe and tongue is. He knows that there will be 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to strike out of Jerusalem preaching the gospel and his kingdom will have no end there in Luke chapter 1 I love Mary's response Mary gets a little upset with the angel Gabriel what you joking she actually says it's recorded of her how can this be Mary defends her virginity I have never known a man. Joseph honors his wife's character. I know she means exactly what she said. Herod strikes out to kill this very child. Why? Because they believed it. It might be true. We can't let this happen. And so the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for the reason, this reason, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph. For nothing will be impossible with God. <laughs> the very thing that was debated in the 1840s, God himself said through the angel Gabriel, Oh, and by the way, believe in miracles. There's nothing impossible for God. And they called him Jesus. They named him after his father. Why? Yehoshua. Yahweh is our salvation. My dad is salvation. My father is salvation. 
This could only be true if the word became flesh and dwelt among us, exactly as John's gospel says. He's superhuman. He's the incarnation of deity. And that's why Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, said, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christos, Christ, the Messiah. For in him dwells all of the Godhead bodily in fullness. It's the original rendering of the Greek. All of the Godhead bodily fully in Jesus and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power that could only be true if Jesus is God and he is amen let's stand and we'll pray together father I pray if there's anyone here tonight maybe they came as a skeptic You love skeptics. Maybe they came as a seeker. You love seekers. Maybe they came as a doubter. You love doubters. Or maybe they came to mock. It was for that reason that you died. You you took the mocking. You took the scourging. You took the stripes that were destined for my back and took them on your own. And so, Lord, I pray... We pray that we would never make alliances and allegiances with this world, that we would stand for your truth, that we who bear your name would also bear your likeness. And Lord, tonight, if there's anyone here who's not saved or they don't know you personally, as this service ends, they'd come up and they would simply say, I want to know Jesus. That simple gospel truth that if we'll confess you with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God, your Father, raised you from the dead, that you, Jesus, will save us by grace and through faith. And so we commit our life to you. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word to cut through all the noise of this world and remind us you're still a God of miracles. We believe in miracles, Lord, because each of us is a walking miracle in you. We were garbage that's been turned into gold. We were destined for hell and now we're destined for heaven. We were out of this world and now we are in your kingdom. And so, Lord, we thank you for your love. Pray that you would bless us. Anoint us for your purposes this week. In Jesus' name, amen.